how much is learning that there's life on other worlds? How much is that worth? Um, and, and not just arguing about what we see in a spectroscope, but seeing it up close. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. Space is tonight's topic. We are talking about something called the Breakthrough Star Shot with Adam Crowell, blogger at Crowell Space. It is late where he is, early where I am. The Very flip side of, uh, of, <laughs> of what we tried last time. So we'll see which one we like better, but I appreciate you being back. Uh, Adam, what is the Breakthrough Star Shot? What is this thing and why should the average person on the street care? Well, it's basically a technology initiative to give us the capability to send probes to other star systems. Since we now know that the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, has a planet, and it's very likely that other nearby stars have suitable planets, we need to go look up close. Uh, because by the time that Starshot's ready, we'll have the telescopic technology to scope these planets out but to actually verify that data because there's only so much that you can study in a point of light mm -hmm. um, so we want to be able to get some images back to us okay uh, so to yeah, get beyond it, the spectrographical analysis at uh, at considerable well, yeah it, it's more that when when we look at a the point of light and examine a spectrogram, you, you're seeing a very one-dimensional image. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as strange as that sounds, it's a point of light. But, um, yeah, so really you need to see a planet as a whole uh, because atmospheres can be deceiving. Um, one thing that we're realising is that, traditional signs of life like free oxygen and an atmosphere doesn't necessarily equate to the presence of life. It, it could be created by other processes. Mm -hmm. uh, so to verify, to, to uh, learn more, we have to get up close and personal. Of course, Starshot uh, intends to do that with some very um, lightweight technology. The, this micro sails they plan to launch, although they're like meters wide, um, they only weigh one gram or two grams. And so the circuits that they have will be the efforts of miniaturization that, you know, basically like the scale of, of Apollo back in the 60s, miniaturizing circuits. Um, it's, it's that kind of jump again in technology. Uh, so it's it's not just uh, the probe; it's the the power systems, the power, the energy storage, the uh, automation to build the the energy emitting arrays in order to push these ultralight sails to other stars. Um, all those things will feed into the effort, and it, and it's really like a a technology program. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what Yuri Milner. Um, the chief person funding it uh, really wants to achieve. Okay. Um, and, and you know a couple of people inside this organization. It's not like we're looking at it from, from a thousand. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there, there's several people from uh, Icarus Interstellar um, or Project Icarus. Um, 
and also uh, 100-year Starship um, and uh, Starship Century. So, for example, Jim Benford and Greg Benford, um, Jim and Greg are uh, twins and Greg's a science fiction writer as well as both of them being trained physicists. Um, they're on the board of advisors um, and heavily involved in the interstellar community. Okay. Um, but there's also Kel Kelvin Long, who I worked with on uh, Project Icarus, um, and, yeah, other people as well from NASA and, and different universities, of course. Okay, so we're getting, we're getting a bunch of smart people together <laughs> as resources, and also there's this culmination yeah. of technology that that is approaching that's right uh, where we're going to get sort of best in class for a while <laughs> i guess kind of thing and so since we've seen these other planets out there they're not that far away and we could get to them uh yeah. everything about uh, about propulsion in space so far that i've seen is about pushing you don't seem to be able to pull in space right and so the idea here is we get a big sail big relative to the size of this little chip that we're sending yeah that's tiny Correct. the sail is, and 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 but uh from standard scale of space stuff all of this is very small right all these things yeah. are quite small and we're gonna exactly use um energy i guess from the sun uh or or solar winds to push this uh, thing with the sail where's that where's well, that energy coming from indirectly um the suggestion is that it will require lasers or microwave or millimeter uh, wave emitters um, but uh, the logical choice for power is solar because um, one of the suggested locations since uh, Alpha Centauri and Proxima are in the southern hemisphere is the uh, high and very dry Atacama Desert um, in South America uh, and one suggestion is that they might um, look at uh, machines that convert the desert sands directly into solar collectors. Okay, um, silica. <laughs> right. Is exactly. Um, okay. It, it's been suggested for the moon, and the Atacama would be a perfect place to uh, uh, try it out on Earth before we try and send it to the moon. Mm. Um, but I mean, ultimately, if if transport to the moon gets cheap enough, um, then it's possible to set it up, say, on the far side of the moon. Okay. And that would be good because you wouldn't have the Earth's gravitational pull to escape from. Uh, well, partly that, partly the, the laser um, doesn't have the atmosphere to punch a hole through. Uh, and partly the fact that the moon's rotation is much slower than the Earth's. Okay. Um, so for those listening who don't understand science that much, the point of the laser is to start making a beam of energy that's pushing this sail. And so you're kind of giving yeah. it a, a punch or a kickstart to get that sail well, going. Yeah, the sail, um, it, it's essentially a mirror. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and light bouncing off the sail, the sail, of course, goes in the opposite direction. So conservation of momentum, one thing pushes the other and off it goes. But of course, in order to get up to the speed that they want, which is 20 to 25% speed of line, so that's uh, 75,000 kilometers per second, or in uh, old money, it's like you know, 180 million miles an hour. Um, 
those sort of speeds, uh, you've got to push at very high acceleration. So we're talking 10,000 times Earth's gravity or more uh, for several minutes. And it'll be over a distance that's you know, a fraction of the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So we're talking tens of millions of miles. Um, so that kind of push, it's an incredible amount of energy focused on a, a sail that weighs you know, a fraction of an ounce and it's being pushed with a force that's, you know, would flatten a human being. And we want that sail to survive. So it has to be made of very special materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the buzz material is graphene, which has incredible properties, um, but just happens to be rather hard to make at the minute. Um, but like that's the whole point of this industry or this research effort is that if we can have these materials breakthroughs and they'll become more available, like mm-hmm. being able to make it in meter sizes means that, you know, it opens up the possibilities for other applications. Yeah. That's one thing I love about space, space exploration. I mean, even since the sixties, I think of it as a big pyramid, right? With the, with at the old time NASA on top. Now there's private firms that are, that are doing yeah. this stuff, right? Where they're coming up with these ideas and new materials and that and processes, you know, foam, ceramic, heat shields, you know, and, and on down. And, and it starts up there, but it gets into society and suddenly your, your thermostats are being made of this stuff, right? And you're in your homes. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, big, the big trickle down well, effect for real this time. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the research papers on making large amounts of graphene or or other 2D materials, um, one example is uh, two-dimensional boron, Hmm. uh, which is apparently very reflective, um, and making star sails, thanks to Starshot getting the idea out there, is one of the uses that they immediately talk about even though they're talking about, you know, a hundred other applications. Yeah. It's that suddenly galvanized the whole field that this stuff matters. It's important, you know? So, so it has to be, I guess, strong. It can't be brittle. It has to flex a bit. Uh, Exactly. At some point, this thing's going to have to turn around because it needs to break somehow. Well, initially they're talking about flybys. Okay. Um, So, It'll zip through other planetary systems in a few hours. Um, And, like, that doesn't seem like a lot of time, but we've had such successes with flyby probes in our own solar system. Mm -hmm. Um, But it would be good if it could slow down. And I I I think that's that's kind of the next step, is is to think of new ways of doing that. Um, One that I research time and time again is magnetic sails. Um, okay. So you, you create a magnetic field that acts like a giant parachute or, or breaking balloon against the, the ionized gas between the stars. Um, and if you can do that, then you can slow down across these distances. Although <laughs> one thing I've I found in my more recent research is that it's, 
it's going to require some pretty incredible materials breakthroughs with superconductors. Um, so yeah. So how is this sale going to protect the circuit? Because I mean, it, at first it's going to have to go out uh, of our solar system, and there's a there's a thing in this a radiation field in the solar system that I would imagine might cause some trouble. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. There's there's a lot of ionized particles in between here and other star systems. Um, I think the they'll have to design it to be radiation hardened. Mm -hmm. uh, but very likely it'll have to be a, a high redundancy architecture uh, of the circuitry so that different parts can, it, it rewires itself on the fly. Um, okay. Yeah, because they can more or less predict the amount of, of uh, radiation damage across that distance. Um, so you just design accordingly. Hmm. Um, but because it's so thin, it's also practically transparent to a lot of the high, higher energy particles. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I'm beginning, cause this, this is a, this is a puzzle you really need to think your way through, right? We're going to do this and send this at high speed, long distances over mm -hmm. um, some period of time. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a couple years, right? Despite this. Yeah, it's a couple of decades. Right. Uh, which is great in a sense, because yeah. now we can actually, uh, whoever starts the program should actually be able to see the, the finish of it. the results, uh, yeah. But, I mean, you're sending this thing so fast and it's so flimsy um, and all it has to do, I mean, how do you avoid it running into a little particle of something that blasts a hole through everything as it, as it passes along? Or are we trusting magnetic fields to push it out of the way or what? Well, uh, I think the mag magnetic option is for bigger vehicles. In this case, it's really being debated, <laughs> and and that's and that's part of the whole initiative is to to open up the forum, mm -hmm. um, to to have so many eyes and minds thinking about how to do this uh, that you know, every option is explored, mm -hmm. not not just the obvious, not just the orthodox, but you know crazy ideas um but still physically plausible ones okay so it, it's kind of restrained imagination yeah. how many of these things would we send at a time because you're not just going to send one obviously uh, you're going to want yeah, some redundancy well, to exactly ensure right and it's not just redundancy because of the uh, need to communicate back to us It'll be almost like a, a, a relay chain. Okay. Um, and because they can be fired every few minutes, uh, they'll be separated by you know, a few uh, hundred million miles, um, which sounds like a lot, but yeah. over interstellar distances, you're talking about you know, thousands of times further. So, um, so yeah, if they can fire every few minutes and they send a, a stream uh, of you know a few hundred, um, then yeah, the odds go up of survival and getting data back. Okay. Impact yeah. for Earth. What is this going to do for us? So we got we got this 
crazy mad scientist plan to send out a stream of light sails with chips attached to them at, at a quarter of the speed of light and in 20 years they'll get to a planet in a neighboring system and be able to tell us something about it. Also, in, along the way, we're going to develop some new processes, new materials. What's going yeah. to uh, happen to society from that? What are we going to learn and how is it going to change us potentially? Well, how much is learning that there's life on other worlds? How much is that worth? Um, and, and not just arguing about what we see in a spectroscope, but seeing it up close. Um, you know, if, if you can see that there are alien forests on another planet hmm. or you, know, you see the lights of cities on the dark side of a planet or what have you, I mean, that the value of that change of perspective you know, we, we all expect it and there's, there's so much UFO lore and so forth, but to have it be incontrovertible, mm -hmm. you know, it'll, I think, profoundly change things. <laughs> okay. I, I do hope we get some high def pictures because I was just laughing to myself about it. instead of a blurry, grainy picture of something on earth, we get the blurry, grainy picture blurry, of grainy something picture. over there. Right? <laughs> it's kind it's of Bigfoot. On yeah. Proxima Centauri B. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Uh, it's a good thing Teddy Roosevelt's sons are not still alive because they'd be order ordering a hunting expedition to run over there. They're the guys who, who found the, uh, the giant panda. <laughs> love oh, that okay. I love that story. <laughs> they, uh, they heard these rumors about this thing and they, um, they went to go find it. So. <laughs> And that, that's a funny example, actually, uh, that just came up because you, you said the Sasquatch thing, right? Uh, the, the giant panda was kind of a myth at the time. It's, and I mean, it's stupid. It's slow. It's not, you know, it's not going out of its way to hide. And yet people couldn't really find it right, for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I think here. <clears throat> okay. Um, obviously, having some, some materials that can survive uh, tremendous heat and pressure and impact and, uh, and be able to work will be important for us. We're going to get energy storage and power generation. Uh, power generation and near and dear to my heart. Part of the, part of the modeling of the system um, assumes like automation and, and production mm -hmm. line like that kind of manufacturing experience mm -hmm. you know, creates capabilities that we can then apply to other problems. You know, if, right. if, if they go with the option of, of you know, burning solar panels out of desert sand, then where else could you do that? And mm -hmm. the power distribution system for that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, the, we don't know until we try. And I, th I think part of the, the problem is, you know, since the, you know, towards the end of the 20th century, a lot of things weren't tried, which you know, could have had better outcomes. Uh, we've kind of stuck with mm -hmm. things that are easy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, and in some ways, capabilities have kind of slipped. And you, you think of, you know, the Concorde, being taken out of service or the space shuttle or what have you like right you know, in, in in many ways it was like 30 years of stagnation the technology went on hold in about 1975 
except for the very small and, and the very smart. So computers got better, but all our big machines just stayed kind of old. Right. And for those looking for another example, there are different kinds of rocket engines uh, that have been worked on and tried to. There's one that's kind of a V shape that really focuses the blast and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we're still using solid propellant and <laughs> giant boosters, right? Uh, that maybe we don't need to be using that, but they're afraid to move over and invest into um, another technology that could potentially fail, as opposed to sticking with the, the big ugly it's thing that, we've got, that we know that works. Yeah. Yeah, like what you're talking about is the aerospike engines, and which you know, in the early 90s with the whole uh, Venture Star and hopefully reusable systems that then it all turned into a fight between NASA and Lockmart about, you know, who was going to pay for it. And mm -hmm. so in the end, they just canned it. It's like... You know, politics killed technology, but, you know, maybe in the early 90s, they weren't quite ready for it either. Yeah, uh, just, you know, we want to highlight to uh, to folks who are not necessarily really into space, right? That's, that's what I'm hoping to do here is, is uh, bring topics like what we're talking about today, Breakthrough Starshot. Uh, and and some other related things that kind of get sucked along with that to maybe more business uh, oriented folks who who don't look up a lot necessarily and uh, and hear about this kind of thing. Um, hmm. Yeah, we are we are not folks. We are not at the edge of technology where we could be at nowhere near. You know, we've been we've been shut down and paused and put on hold with restricted budgets and political decisions and uh, kind of wolf marking territory fights and that kind of thing so yeah and and that's it's always the danger that that by those in power sticking with what they can do and not trying what they could do we end up just muddling along with an awful lot of uh you know feel good moments but but no real advances um Although, yeah, this is not to poo poo sort of, anyone. <laughs> yeah, there's been there's been a, an amazing amount of stuff achieved. Um, certainly, things started looking better. You know, Pathfinder on Mars and all the rovers since things have kind of looked looked up. Mm -hmm. um, I think people have that feeling that yeah, we really can do this now. You know, this century. We've we've got the new space breaking open the the old attitudes. It's like, well, maybe there's different ways of doing things. Right. Yeah. I remember a few years back, I was interviewing a vice president of business development for one of the two big asteroid mining firms. Uh, yeah. And uh, him telling me that private industry was now wanting to get involved and fund and research things, and they were no longer trying to sort of suckle off the NASA grant funding teat. So big moment from my perspective right i was like wow yeah. really i didn't know that right uh, and, uh, it's kind of sad both of those organizations have been bought out one's undergone a major name change uh and i really wonder how that's going to work out hopefully it's 
business as usual with a little rebranding, but uh, you never know. So what's in between us and, and Breakthrough Starshot, Adam? Um, what, what kind of things do we need to get before we're able to well, actually do this? I, I think, I mean, the Breakthrough Starshot initiative itself is more about the, the low technology readiness preparation. So it's the research work before the, the actual nuts and bolts. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it'll go from good ideas to working hardware. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the next 20 years of effort to see what will happen. Okay. Um, so that, that's the timeline we're looking at is hopefully... Uh, 20 to 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they're aiming for about 2050 um, to see it firing off. That's interesting because um, our uh, Yuri uh, Milner, the, the Russian billionaire, he's he may not be alive to see this. That that's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I th I think he'd probably hope for it to be a bit sooner. You know, 20 years from now. But yeah, who knows? <clears throat> but I think that's cool. Uh, leaders taking on projects that are bigger than themselves right and well, uh, you know this, yeah. is, this might take more than one lifetime to uh, to get going and see the results of that, that's impressive. yeah exactly all right yeah well so. you know although i keep hearing these biomedical rumors around the place of cancer breakthroughs and that sort of thing and you go well you know 20 years down the track another 20 years may not look so bad hmm. You know, for, for those of us who are, who are pushing a few decades. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, very cool. I, I thank you for being here, Adam. Uh, it's been great to explore this topic with you and bring it to the attention of uh, folks who probably never heard of it. And, uh, you know, because their, their attention is not on it, right? And yeah. Give them an idea. And look, business people, this is an opportunity for you to get into uh, a market and work on these things because we've got uh, probably in the show notes, I'll list this stuff that you've written down here, Adam. <clears throat> Materials, advances, energy storage, power generation, which again is near and dear to my heart because that's what I started out in right out of college was the power industry. Very large scale arrays and uh, some clever automation. All great process and material and, and power opportunities for, uh, for us folks to get into. And, and that's the thing when, you know, th there's money going around, then there's more money going around. Mm -hmm. it, you know, when the chill is put on research, everything else suffers for it. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. This is, this is a way of uh, creating a new economy. Um, yeah. accessing a new, a new slice of, of the economy, one that is only going to expand. Um, and I, I got to admit, some of this stuff is hard. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's not the easiest stuff in the world. And, and the, the good news side to that is that means competitive advantage sustained over some period of time. It will be a lot harder for someone to come in and copy you once you've, uh, once you've got some process or some material figured out exactly and patented and whatnot. you know it's the opportunity for market leaders to emerge mm -hmm. uh, that's just the thing mm -hmm. um and with that capability they just create more markets mm -hmm. so that's right yeah i mean i mean people didn't understand how to use i don't know maybe steel right if you go to even um 
a fictional example, Atlas Shrugged and uh, Reardon Metal. Um, they had to figure out like, what are we gonna do with this? Yeah, we can build rail lines and bridges with it, but we can also make bowls and jewelry out of it, right? To, you know, so you never know where this stuff is going to end up uh, in a commercial sense. And- uh, Well, yeah, you know, large scale production of graphene, if it's cheap enough, you know, as a reinforcing material and as a base material, it, it's amazing what it could do. Mm. It's just to research a little more into that. Cause yeah, you yeah. think about curtains inside factories that uh, is very hot on one side and protects the other side or maybe very cold or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's, um, there's a lot of application for this stuff. It's something that's emerged and, and as we play around more research wise with better reflective materials is the fact that we can engineer light with these with these structures at, at very tiny scales and if you can make that large so you have optically active surfaces then they become heat barriers and they become ultra reflectors and and all these things become possible um, hmm. in new ways that we just until we had the computing technology just didn't know was possible um, but now we're able to do these nanoscale calculations and we're finding all these things that we can do with light at such a mm -hmm. tiny tiny scale right I, I have not looked into that for quite a while um, but just you're saying this and I'm imagining in my head a circuit that uses light <clears throat> as the information right on and off and that but I know there were like quantum logic gates in the 90s where it's like this tiny little particle and that there or not there is your on yeah. or off zero or one right or whether some things allowed to pass through and yeah <laughs> very very tiny tiny um, apparatus here with which to make well, green out of. that's that's the, the thing as they work more with this stuff um, what they can then pattern mm -hmm. um, in bulk because if, if you create interference patterns over a large area you can then shape things and with the right materials they will respond to the peaks and valleys and that light pattern that you create over them so that you can pattern huge areas all at once um, rather than trying to make billions of tiny little changes all in one place. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, you can yeah. put out a new energy field and re recalibrate the matrix right away. Huh. Interesting, interesting. So uh, maybe we should talk about that in our next episode <laughs> because that, that sounds pretty cool and, and uh, I'm imagining the possibilities right now. Because with the, with the interference pattern, what that means is complexity over a larger area faster. Right. Yeah. Which is just exactly. what you're saying. Instead of turning one dot on and off, I can shoot out this field and instantly reorganize the pattern. Um, as long as the the material that you've got that it's shining onto is then changing with that varying pattern, mm -hmm. um, and and that's what they're discovering is that these two dimensional materials can be shaped by light directly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, and this has all become possible because we can now 
calculate these things out in detail, whereas before it was like the equations were just too laborious. Hmm. Um, but we have the computing capacity now to do it. I'm going to have to look into this more because it sounds, I can start seeing the possibilities with it and, uh, and I want to see where that goes. Awesome. Mm. Uh, Adam, where can people find out more about you? I mean, they can go to your blog. Uh, well, I haven't written up anything personally um, and more, more of a technology watcher than a, an innovator myself. But um, yeah, uh, somehow I end up, being connected to all these interesting people right what is your blog so that people can go there yep uh crowdspace so c-r-o-w-l-s-p-a-c-e.com right and uh, and adam's blog is very science heavy so don't go in there expecting uh, i don't know popular mechanics or uh some what what am I saying? I, I'm trying to say it's not going to be a slick, easy read. He does you, he is you'll run into algebra occasionally. <laughs> there will be references, and there will be sometimes high-level concepts that you have to look up on Wikipedia. <laughs> right, but if you really want to get into this stuff, uh, you know he's he's talking about the real thing on it. So um, plus, my Twitter handle okay is Q R A A L. Q R A A L. Okay. Yeah. I know I follow you. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's generally the, my more active thing because I, I trawl through the science news and all this sort of thing. So basically it's, it's keeping watch on certain developments, um, especially that optically active material and which applies not just to laser sails, but it also applies to telescopes and, mm -hmm. You know, lenses that can be configured on the fly and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it's it's funny how all these different sides of the same kind of science feed together and the technologies that they influence. Right. Uh, surprising the combinations that arise. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, my thanks to Adam Crowell, who stayed up late in Australia. I'm Jason Canigan from North Carolina. <laughs> Uh, appreciate you being here.